So far this season, in the years of Vladpod, we've discussed the origins of autonomia in Roma, Milano, and Veneto, and we've also talked about the Fatoletti Rossi in the occupation of Fiat in Torino. We also heard from Vicky Franzinetti, co-founder of Lotto Continua, about the rise and fall of the new left in the 1970s. While Potere Operaio fell apart in 1973 due to conflicts between leading figures over the importance of a party model as opposed to a diffused and networked movement for workers' autonomy, Lotto Continua continued to move forward. As violence intensified through the mid-70s, Lotto Continua was forced with a choice. Buckle up and ride the violence by maintaining the militant track, or cash in their losses and join the more formal political organizations. As this question grew into larger disputes between the rank-and-file workers and the leadership, the group's security forces, called the Servizio d'Ordine, became the main subject of dispute. For many of the next generation of militants coming up through Italian high schools in the mid-1970s, the Servizio d'Ordine looked like the inheritors of the legacy of the anti-fascist partisans. These were the guys defending unpermitted marches against the cops, engaging in fights against the fascists, and participating in the housing occupations. They had attempted to organize the violence of the old left into a conscientious force that would defend advances, prevent further attacks, and retaliate against provocations. With this, however, violence started to spiral into what Italians came to call simply la violenza, not just interspersed and somewhat random activities, but an entire circumambience of violence, a seemingly all-enveloping feeling of violence that preceded and followed violent incidents. All of Italy was intensifying, from the high schools to the streets to the factories and the workers' districts. And as the workers' movement generalized into social struggles for transit, housing, cost of living, and other sectors of daily life, the women's movement became particularly critical of the growing violence in Italian society. The Servizio d'Ordine seemed to become the targets of a general feeling that the left represented a macho tendency born of factories as centers for male power and dominance. The almost entirely male leadership of Lotto Continuo was hardly responsive to women's demands at first. However, in 1975 and 1976, the leadership took an about turn, putting themselves forward as attempting to rein in the Servizio d'Ordine. Some argued that this was a long time coming while others insisted that this was merely an opportunistic effort to disengage from a militant strategy that had reached an impasse. In other words, the joyful militancy of the early 1970s could not be sustained in light of new legal crackdowns, so the allure of careers in mainstream politics, journalism, and academia became too great to resist. From the feminist side, the violence was overwhelming and tended to be seen as coupled with domestic violence and male domination. For this episode, I spoke with former Servizio d'Ordine member Fabrizio Salmoni, who puts forward the other perspective. For Salmoni, who joined the group after his activism in university in Turin drove him to solidarity with factory workers, the Servizio d'Ordine of Lotto Continua represented its political base, the vanguard within the workers' movement. Salmoni and I had a far-ranging conversation that you can hear at the Patreon. 
But for the purposes of this episode, I've clipped a few key excerpts that describe the Servizio d'Ordine, its organization and its activities in Turin during the mid-1970s, as well as the collapse of Lotto Continua. Here's Salmoni describing the feeling of workers' power that drove him into Lotto Continua. Imagine a work, uh, hundred workers in blue work coveralls starting in one section of the factory, entering and sweeping up the lines, soon becoming thousands, all beating on empty tanks, blowing on whistles, sending bosses and uh, security guards to run, using long ropes to encircle the scabs and drag them in in the march, breaking sealed the gates to to enter the manager's offices and uh, raising offices of the small fascist union called the Chisnau, taking over the whole factory for hours, enthusiastically for as long as they decided to hold on. This was turning upside down the control system of the factory. This was spontaneously a a revolutionary fact. And that was uh, the the one other peculiarity of these kind of struggles was that they were self-organized and self-controlled and self-managed. Then these marches of thousands of people would get off the factory from, from the main entrances and meet the second shift waiting to enter the factory. And then they would, they would uh, get together and started discussing thousands of people, discussing in, in smaller, bigger groups. And then maybe the the march would go on and go through the neighborhoods around the factory. And this was a, a, a real completely new phenomenon in, in, in a factory, factory struggle and in class struggle. So in this environment with the students going to the gates of the factories to see what was going on and, and to learn, and to learn, this encounter became something more solid and gave way to the birth of many radical groups, uh, including Lotta Continua, which in Torino became a stronger force, with a stronger extreme left force. For Lotto Continua, the force exercised by workers autonomous from the parties or the unions inspired the movement towards revolutionary action. The group took these two principles, autonomy and force, as its founding precepts. Here's Salmoni on the definition of autonomy and force. Uh, Lotta Continua is an organized movement. Uh, as I said, we're born during those huge strikes in, in 1969. Different from other groups of what was called the revolutionary left, Lotta Continua would aim at organizing and unifying, or unifying around the leading industrial working class, the struggles of any other compar- compartment of the proletariat. Fishermen, shepherds, homeless, uh, even convicts in, 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 in the jails, draft soldiers, uh, unemployed labor farmers, students. And this strategy intended to bring all capitalists of the proletariat and its allies to cause, in the long run, a radical change in the balance of political power. Uh, it should have been, it, the idea was the long run. This is important to, to, to understand because Lata Continua never, never talk about insurrection and also 
because the long run was one of the causes of the of the dissolution, the late, late dissolution of Lata Continua. Maybe we'll see it. We'll see that later on. Basic principle and doctrine in the doctrine of Lata Continua was where autonomy, meaning self-organization, self-direction of the struggles with no official or institutional entities like parties, unions, or whatever else. And force. Force was meant the capacity to defend any situation or any advancement acquired with the struggle. Just keep in mind that one month of organization and political work somewhere could be lost in one day for, for, for an attack of the, of the police. So uh, the necessity to defend what's, what was acquired was uh, the problem to face. Also, another important thing was to impose the right to march even against any uh, prohibition uh, by the by the police authority. During the years of the students from 67 to 69, police used, police used to attack marches which were not authorized by the police headquarters, but right to march even without those per permits and uh, uh, by the police headquarters was an important fact. Both those concepts, autonomy and uh, self-organization and force were, were considered essential and unavoidable for a revolutionary force. As discussed extensively in the first season of this podcast, Lotto Continua put forward the line Prendiamoci la Cita, or Let's Take the City, embarking on a national campaign of housing occupations, fair strikes, and refusal of rent and utilities increases. And in 1972, the organization assembled a national convention in Rimini. The group consolidated its direction around four key things the creation of new chapters across the country, the creation of new student political collectives, the development of a national newspaper, and most critically, a new campaign to get the state to ban the Movimento Sociale Italiano, Italy's fascist party. This campaign, Fuori Legge MSE, or Ban the MSE, became the banner of the latest strategy, the militant anti-fascism, of the general clash, a militant confrontation against the forces of reaction that would train the vanguards in militant struggle and bring about the crystallization of a potential armed mass party. Here's Salmoni on the Rimini Convention. Yeah, the National Convention of 1972 decided over uh, several points. One, the first decided to get structured as a party and consequently open headquarters and chapters all over, everywhere possible. Second, uh, this decision was to create the CPS, Italian Collettivi Politici Studenteschi, for students. And they, they were space, spaces for students who would choose active commitment, but were not interested in, uh, in a full party activity. It was very useful because uh, 
many students, many young people can be part of the, of the CPS. Um, people, uh, young students, young people who might have not uh, might have not come otherwise. Uh, third was to call for an anti-fascist national campaign, and this is this opens a subject about uh, a national campaign uh, asking and imposing the ban of the fascist party, the MSI. This opens uh, the subject and need to be discussed um, widely. So the, the, this new the fascist party uh, actually shouldn't have been declared legal because the new constitution of the country was, uh, was declaring that uh, uh, no other fascist party was, uh, it was illegal to found a, another neo-fascist party. So it was illegal according to the constitution. On this basis, Lotta Continua called for an anti-fascist campaign uh, calling for a ban of the MSI. Then uh, that's something should have prohibited the restoration under any form of fascist party and, and uh, should have be denying the public, uh, the public and political activity of this party. Since then, the anti-fascist practice, practice was permanently and then enforced everywhere by, by all the new left groups or the revolutionary organizations. Uh, uh, and, and went deep into the consciousness of, of the country. This, there was this episode, this is, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting to, to know that even uh, once uh, the leader of the MSI was traveling by car on, on the motorway from Firenze to Bologna, stopped at a truck stop to have lunch, and the waiters denied service to him. Just to give an idea how much the consciousness, the anti-fascism consciousness in those years was widespread. And the last thing was uh, was uh, decided at that convention was the publishing of a newspaper, a daily newspaper, uh, financed by the personal contributions, donations and purchase of so-called popular stocks that would make the newspaper formally property of any single purchaser. This is what the, the National Convention in 1972 decided. The militant anti-fascism of the Fuori Legi MSI campaign, along with the escalation of violence around the struggle for housing, contributed to the rise in the absolute necessity for security services. The Communist Party and the MSI already had their own Servizio de Ordine, and so Loto Continua had to formalize their own formations. Salmoni discusses this development as taking place from 1971 to 1973 in terms of, quote, discipline, cohesion, and consciousness. No more relying on the presence of some sturdy guys to defend political progress. They needed organization. Well, workers uh, knew how to defend themselves very well, and they self-organized themselves very well, much better than others. Um, uh, they, and as I as I described 
earlier, those marches and those strikes, internal strikes, uh, were very well organized and were really uh, showing the force of of the mass of workers and in the leading force. The outside, as I also was mentioned before, the the tradition of self-defense came from the students' movement. Uh, they needed to defend the marches from the, the attacks of the police. So uh, any uh, every organization and every party hmm, since 68, 67 had their Servizio d'Ordine, including the Communist Party, of course, which was, uh, its power was articulated throughout the society and the cultural associations uh, and the branches of all types. And so everybody had, also the MSI had their Servizio d'Ordine. And it was, uh, there were years of violence, spread of violence all over the country. The police was shooting, but was, you know, there were some lynchings. A infamous uh, story of the, of the anarchist uh, Pisano from Pisa, uh, Serantini, who was lynched while in prison by the cops. Uh, so there was violence spread. There was a spreading violence all over, and fascists would uh, would uh, attack the pickets, the factories, and the schools. So the first necessity was the self-defense. So the self-defense, the pattern of the self-defense of the students was to build the the most famous, the the first, and the most famous, or infamous, according to point of views was the Servizio Dodin of the State University of Milano, who, which was uh, based on physical strength, tight ranks, helmets, mm, uh, Molotov bottles to disrupt uh, charges of, poli- of the police, slings and uh, other stuff. And uh, it was effective for, for a while. And pattern for taken from from all others on and the convention after the bombs of 1969 the bombs of the slaughter in Milano organized by the secret service with the manpower of the of and some fascists uh, the, the situation became real heavy heavy some some say that we lost our innocence after those bombs. And, and so uh, those facts taught us that the situation was much more serious than what we thought. So the, the call for the the for a self-defense instructor by Lotta Continua was uh, something that attracted thousands of young people to organize uh, for self-defense. And that was the same kind of pattern also for Lotta Continua uh, until 1973. In 73, uh, uh, seven, yeah, until 73, the doctrine, as I mentioned before, was officially pronounced. But discipline 
cohesion and consciousness. And, and the organization an increased number of militants, the whole doctrine was updated. Anybody could join this would be as long and this was mandatory as he or she would do political work at his or her workplace, school, university, neighborhood, whatever. And also the women had their important role as tafete. I would translate it as messengers also, even though messengers not enough because they would provide precious services of all kinds, of keeping communications, reconnaissance, assistance, assistance to, to, to the teams. And that was a little bit after the pattern of the partisans defeated during the Liberation War. So that no more sturdy guys, I was saying, as in the previous era, discipline, cohesion, and uh, consciousness. And that's what, that's what made the Savitsa Dardine of La Continua different from all other similar outfits. The active participation to polit political work was the necessary condition to prevent any form of militarism or machism or individualism. So the Turin Servizio de Ordine began with some smaller activities around 1972. In one event, some MSE members gathered around the Piazza Lagrange to promote fascism using loudspeakers mounted on their cars. A group of Lotto Continua members of the Servizio de Ordine descended on the scene and busted up a couple of cars near the Porta Nuova with the help of some guys from the group Lotto Comunista. This resulted in six arrests, but showed where things were going. Later, in June 1972, a group of MSC members celebrated the graduation of the leader of the local youth group section from the Fronte della Gioventù. Some Lotto Continuisti got wind of this happening and came up with a plan. They posted anti-fascist posters on the windows of the pizzeria while the party's happening. The fascists came out to fight, thinking there'd be a few ruffians, and then a full force of anti-fascists descended on them, brutally beating them with sticks and damaging some of their cars. This resulted in some arrests, as a rando in the area reported the license plate of one of the Servizio d'Ordine members. That November, a clutch of fascists with the youth group hit up the high school Liceo, Liceo Alfieri to flyer the kids there, and they were fought by some Servizio d'Ordine members who smashed up their car pretty good. On January 27th, the following year, the emboldened left-wingers came at the MSE hard, launching an assault on their headquarters on Corso Francia after the killing of a Milanese student named Roberto Franceschi. This started with a peaceful demonstration which disbanded in Piazza Catello, but afterwards, as evening fell, a detachment of 30 Servizio d'Ordine marched through the winter cold into the western section of town. They developed a tactical plan to attack the headquarters from two directions with Molotovs, but the fascist guard was armed, and he unloaded his pistol on the Lotto Continuisti, shooting and injuring three, including their leader Manconi. Dozens of arrests followed. Meanwhile, 
The housing occupations were raging, and the squatters proved even more violent and uncontrollable than the Servizio de Ordine could handle. Lotto Continua in Turin helped families occupy public housing in Via delle Cacce, Nuovo Falquera, Corso Cincinato, Corso Grosseto, and of course, those who have been evicted from large private buildings in Corso Toscana. After some hard struggles, they got the mayor to accept accommodations for the families by 1975. In Rome, struggles for housing were even more brutal, with the exchange of gunfire in San Basilio resulting in the killing of a 19-year-old member of Avanguardia Operaia named Fabrizio Ceruso in September 1974. Here's Salmoni on the squatters' movement and their rage. The squatters used to occupy, occupy. Squatters were, actually, was, uh, were the poorest proletarians who didn't even have a house, an apartment. So uh, there was a, they would occupy the, the empty apartments still to be rented. And uh, they would end their occupation from from the deputants of the police uh, to disrupt the occupation. But the squatters were not as disciplined as other categories of people, of, of workers, because um, it's easy at learning organization, but they, they knew uh, how to get, uh, to get over obstacles. And you should have seen the march, the marches of the squatters with the women, some wild, angry women in the first ranks, and they, they made the cops run. Sometimes even the mayors. One time in Torino, they, the, the mayor of Torino, ran off the city hall, and uh, hid in a bar in a nearby bar because he was so scared. And those women were real. <laughs> they, they they were worse than any others of each other. Man, the man, uh, squatters men were also, uh, how can I say? Mm. They, 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 they were, they cling to, they cling to use weapons to defend their occupations dead uh, during many of these occupations. Uh, one in San Basilio in Rome, where this shot one young squatter and the man took up arms and, and uh, responded with fire and wounded eight cops, shooting from the terraces and from the windows. Uh, it was a, it, it was a, they were our times. As the struggles went on, the Servizio de Ordine became more ordered and developed their own kind of culture. They did hope to avoid militarism and machismo through power sharing and revolving leadership, but there were a number of different groups with different ideas on what to do. So this is, uh, the, the Servizio de was organized in teams. And every team needed to have a person in charge. And uh, all of them were to report to the area of the city commander at the quarters. Team commanders were voted or agreed on by 
the members. Some team would choose a shift pattern. My team chose to shift to avoid the militarism and, you know, there were many, many, many ways and many choices to to make on, on this um, issue. Well, the structure a force committee was formed at every local headquarter and its members reported to the political secretariat. All force committees would report to national force committee, which, which at its turn would report to the national secretariat. Each force committee was in charge of the following areas, Servizio d'Ordine, Intelligence, Legal and Logistic Assistance, PID, which was uh, uh, an acronym for Proletarian Divisa, uh, that means soldier, proletarian in uniforms, which was the branch organizing semi-clandestine work among the soldiers, which needed the Servizio d'Ordine assistance for guaranteeing self-participation of masked, soldier, masked soldiers in uniform to marches or public events. So this was the largely the structure. Of course, uh, the, major, the major in numbers, the Servizio d'Ordine were in Torino, Roma, Milano. Uh, in Torino in 1970, May 1975, there were about 400 people in Servizio d'Ordine. Uh, I don't know exactly the numbers in Milan and Roma, but I suppose that this could have been at least 1,000, around 1,000, more or less, especially in Rome. Uh, <clears throat> but I don't know exactly the numbers. We didn't know it then. So in 1974, this is the year that the so-called strategy of tension broke open. Instead of bombing crowded public places full of civilians, fascists bombed an anti-fascist rally in Brescia's Piazza della Loggia, killing eight and wounding over a hundred. This was now direct political warfare, not merely an effort to frame up the left for a terrorist attack, and the violence across Italy escalated accordingly. In November of that year, 1974, more confrontations occurred in Turin around an auto show. Some 100 fascists came and started the flyer outside of the event, announcing their support for the secret services and the forces responsible for the failed coups over some loudspeakers. At the same time, there's a workers' tent there where they're spreading information about labor organizing. They don't mix well, and some anti-fascists come out to see what's happening, then more start to arrive, and sooner or later a large crowd of leftists attacks the fascist provocateurs, resulting in brutal fighting. The head of the Fronte della Gioventù of the MSE spent 40 days in the hospital after escaping the brawl, but he wasn't done yet. A few days after he got out of the hospital, he was confronted again in Piazza Arbarello, and he takes out a huge pistol, but's disarmed and beaten down again, buying himself another ticket to the hospital. In April... The next year, 1975, a series of murders by leftists, fascists, and police led to a new level of social tension. I covered these so-called Days of April in an earlier episode titled The Days of April in the Time of Wrenches, 
But let's just say that this brought the idea of the general clash to a new level of intensity. Here, Salmoni explains the structure of Loto Continuo's Servizio d'Ordine and describes a second assault on the Turin headquarters of the MSE, this time with a force of 10,000 strong. There were new criteria for organized marches. If a clear task was designated, it had to be carried out, but only if sustained by numbers or evidence of wide political acceptance. No numbers, no march. Torino, we uh, raised and burned the MSI um, headquarters in 1975, but then we were 10,000, in a march of 10,000 who went to, to do that. And the, cop, the few cops in front of the place, they just ran when <laughs> they saw the, the massive march com, coming up. So it was an easy work in that case. Just for an example. Of course, this was a, a deterrence. Um, there was a, 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 after a case of rape, and killing of two lower class guards by a group of rich young fascists near Rome. Lotta continued to organize the march through the Parioli, a rich and extreme right neighborhood, and made it out with no opposition whatsoever by cops or fascists, because as the commander of Servitudotin declared, they were unassailable. That just gives you the idea. Another spectacular case of deterrence occurred in 1974 after a bomb attack, a bomb, bombs placed by the fascist in Brescia, North Italy, in Brescia Main Square, bombs that made uh, eight dead and 102 wounded, I mean, among, among workers, factory workers. Well, on the following days, a massive organized force of hundreds of factory workers took over the city, kept the police away, and threateningly booed the politicians came to speak. Those massive cohesion, discipline, and determination was a clear message. It said, we know that you are all part of this plot. If you don't take the, pro the appropriate measures for stopping all this, we will have to take the matter in our hands. That made real problems to the political scene of the day. Well, what was important maybe to say is that in that case, in those days, we could win in the streets, in spite of the losses. Uh, but the police was confronted at an adequate level of force and uh, uh, it was clear that what they could do more uh, the shooting. And that happened when in, in, in July 75, the Legge Reale, New Law and Order Act, was approved in Parliament with the um, abstention of the Communist Party. And this law allowed the police to shoot openly and prohibited bearing uh, second-class arms like 
those that were used normally in the street fighting. <clears throat> so it, it grew until 1975 and grew. The violence grew all over the country. Precisely as the violence is growing increasingly diffused throughout Italy, the leadership of Lotto Continua is changing track. The coup d'etat against the left-wing government of Salvador Allende in Chile in late 1973 had forced a reckoning across the Italian left. The Italian Communist Party under Enrico Berlinguer decided to turn towards a historic compromise with the Socialist Party and the center-left, hoping to develop a consensus of the anti-fascist and democratic majority. Meanwhile, Lotto Continua's leadership took the coup as a signal that they needed to be prepared for reactionary violence and a counter-revolutionary program of the right. However, this meant not getting mired in more violence, but turning towards an electoral strategy. So, in 1975, the dirigenti of Lotto Continua decided to try to join the Communist Party in an electoral effort, losing the faith of much of their constituency. The communists did very well in the elections, but the elections were a bust for Lotto Continua's leadership. Salmoni describes the electoral effort of 1975 as part of an effort to disengage from the growing tensions while moving toward the possibility of professional careers at the expense of the mass base who represented autonomy and especially at the expense of the Servizio de Ordine who most represented the precept of force. In, uh, in early 1975 was the decision of voting the communist uh, the Communist Party at, at the administrative elections in June. This decision that caused internal strong internal discontent. First consequence of that decision and the most effective loss was the exit of a number of territorial chapters in suburban Milano with a force of 10 to 150. So in <clears throat> they had asked the national leadership to review the doctrine of force by considering those new forms of organization displayed in the factories. Upon denial, they left and formed an autonomous local force named Comitati Comunisti per il Potere Operaio, Communist Committees for the Workers' Power, Working Class Power. They led interesting struggles to connect small and medium factories uh, with their territory and adopted new peculiar forms in force practice. But they were not part anymore of a national party. They remained kind of isolated in their suburban neighborhoods of Milano and factories of Milano. 1975, those elections were won by the Communist Party all over Italy. They took over most of the uh, administration, local administrations. But the irony of that electoral decision was that after winning the elections and taking over most of the local administration, the Communist Party denied any collaboration with Lotta Continua. Some of the leaders were disappointed. They really thought they could work together a change and not the way our leaders had planned. There was a new sheriff in town now, and he meant to take the law and order and new relations with the owners of the industrial complex in, in his hands. 
Some of our leaders openly complained, disappointed by the missed opportunity of becoming good interlocutors. But the most lethal crisis motivation was yet and soon to come. But all the whole situation was too much for their capacities to deal with. In that situation, their future as revolutionary leaders looked as grim as the widespread social clash going on in the country. Most of them were brilliant, educated, they were but they were tired, scared, with no more ideas, and thinking they would deserve something better than what was probably in store for them. Just rem consider that in 1979, only four years later, all the leaders of the Autonomia Peraya were arrested. And so they didn't know that, of course, in 1975, but they sniffed the air and thought that could happen to them in a short or mid-run. So they had started figuring for themselves, they started figuring for themselves a more safe and rewarding future. As professionals in communication, maybe or journalists or managers into public, uh, into public or private field, or why not in parliament? But they could, they could just not quit then. They, they didn't know what to do. So they needed an, an exit strategy silent and under track because they couldn't afford to openly declare that they would quit and they would have raised such a debate and they couldn't have made it. Then something happened in, on the, in December 1975, something uh, was uh, it was uh, sanctioned the complicated situation of the party in the, at that moment. In late 1975, members of the women's movement organized a march in Rome, which was intruded on by members of the Servizio d'Ordine of multiple organizations who thought that a women's only march was separatism. The incident, which resulted in a fracas, led to outrage throughout the left and contributed to the crack-up of Lotto Continua. Lotto Continua's leadership was now moving into a stage of crisis. By 1976, the hardest militants of Lotto Continua in Milano were leaving the group for the growing area of Autonomia, formulating a tendency associated with the journal Senza Tregua, which I'll get into in a future episode. Meanwhile, Lotto Continua got together with Avanguardia Operaia and Partido de Unidad Proletaria, also known as PDUP, to form a new electoral coalition called Democrazia Proletaria. Democrazia Proletaria seemed to be sort of a non-starter. Lotto Continua wasn't part of the extra-parliamentary left, it was losing its militants, and it didn't seem to be working. For Salmoni, instead of grappling with the structural problems presented by technological changes in the factories, the leadership basically took an out by joining with the women's movement and scapegoating the machismo of the Servizio d'Ordine. The counter-argument about this is very real, and to hear it in full, I recommend going back to the Franzinetti interview. Basically, the intervention against the women's march was the last straw that broke open the movement. The fight in the streets wouldn't help anybody if it only reinstated male power over women and society. 
The factory struggle was only one half of the struggle of everyday life, and by actively resisting the women's movement, the Servizio de Ordine were showing that the glamorous way towards armed struggle was only a ticket to abuse and exploitation. While I find Franzinetti's arguments compelling, of course, I wanted to also include Salmoni's perspective as someone who was with Lotto Continua from its founding to its disintegration, because it does add complexity. The, the leadership, he claims, didn't side with the women's movement out of true fidelity, but out of an effort to relieve themselves of the pressures of the period and open a new chapter in their own careers. Salmoni says that the Servizio de Ordine were never intentionally macho or anti-feminist, but put forward instead a larger class-centric analysis that viewed the necessity of force as a crucial part of a class struggle in which the movement for women belonged in a non-confrontational and allied role. Uh, as I said, they, they needed an exit strategy, and they found what they needed when following a scrap in Rome, with the Isavicidad in Padupe and Araya, that the women only marched for abortion and rights, the few women were accidentally hit. And that event was seen by some as violent male intrusion and caused the rage and rebellion of the. You know, their targets became the machism of the Servizidotina and the whole, the alleged machism of Servizidotina and the whole leadership, which was accused of disregard, disregarding the women's condition within the party. The protests soon flooded into all branches of Lotto Continuo and went over any expectation. An extreme group took the lead, advocating the gender view and attacking. Factory workers as symbols of machism. In Torino, lists of alleged top machists were posted on headquarters wall. The women even divided among themselves. Those who advocated gender view staged public trials against those other women, most of them from the messengers from, uh, of the Servizidodine, who favored placing the issue in wider terms of class. The leaders quickly took side and gained the feminist favor. Such a contraposition in a few months created a split in the party, which grew to become a serious political issue. Nothing more useful to disrupt the party could occur. Now a clear strategy could be thought. Split the party, go to Congress to win it, and reshape Lotta Continua as a small institutional party within the wider left, with the newspaper and their refurbished leadership. On the wave of such an internal chaos, a Congress was called for November 1976, and silently an advance payment was made for a new typography. <clears throat> for the newspaper. And at the same time, a campaign was launched for a joint electoral list with Padupe and Guadia Peraya for the upcoming political elections in June 1976. And nothing could, more, could be more devastating than such an idea. The fascist practice was called off for electoral purpose. The Electoral Alliance 
with those groups whose reciprocal relations with Lotta Continua were more often conflictual in most situations. So the alliance was rejected by most of the militant body, but accepted by many who were as tired and scared as the leaders. And in Rome, the national leadership struggled with, even with the reluctant Dupenao to be accepted in the police. Eventually, um, our, our leaders accepted to have the lower part of the list and accepted the condition not to be in the list uh, of the candidates. Because our Epdup made a, a strong opposition to their presence in the, in the list. So this electoral, that electoral campaign was disregarded by the militant body. And the anti-fascism was practiced even more MSI public rallies were staged and called. And the internal contraposition became an open conflict, apparently between women and factory workers and with Soviet Sadatin, but still silent and under track about the real purpose. The boycotting of the Soviet Sadatin practice by local leaders became frequent. In Torino, as I described, I think in chapter 13, even a major attempt getting physically rid of the Soviet Sadatina was staged. So the June, June elections were a disaster for the joint list. Only one representative of Lotta Continua was elected, and he was uh, employed, a committee of the unemployed in Napoli. He didn't even belong to the group of leaders, or national leaders. The disappointment among them became an even deeper grudge. Their A plan, getting elected to parliament, had failed. But still the B plan remained. It was to win the Congress and keep the newspaper. As would come with time. So, um, While a new wave of factory strikes and social unrest was taking place most everywhere, most everywhere against the cost of living, there were strong struggles in the northern factories in September. And in November, the Congress of Lata Continua was another, I can call it, it was called disaster. It was also called a psychodrama. The two factions, on one side, feminist, on the other side, workers, the factory workers and Sadani were often on the edge of clashing. When the leaders showed up on stage, were attacked by all, by both factions. The National Secret Secretary, Adriano Sofri, left after the introduction speech and reappeared on the last day only to draw a confused, uh, bitter, sarcastic conclusion, ending with, uh, thanks everybody for coming. A new national committee somehow was managed to get elected, but never took charge. So Lotta Continua, those days ceased to exist as an organization among the general dejection. Even the B plan had failed. 
only the newspaper was left to keep. And they kept it, kept it along with the money that was solicited and collected, collected throughout the year, saying the newspaper belongs to those who were forced. So they kept it for a few years, received additional funds from the Socialist Party and from the Catholic Union, Jesus, then shut it down. Some went to work as journalists for one magazine of the Socialist Party. A few looked for a place in Parliament by affiliating to some small parties, and finally a few of them eventually were elected. The last one of them lost his seat only a few months ago on, 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 uh, in the latest uh, election, September 2022. Others, others became university teachers, journalists or managers, no matter if on the left or on the right. Throughout the years, they strived and succeeded to offer a good fellow's public image of themselves through articles, books, and interviews and spread false narration of the dissolution. Because we know that, and I tried to demonstrate it in my book, that, that Elegy died on the, on the choice between being a revolutionary force, rediscuss uh, the problem of force and renovate structures and uh, doctrines or become a small institutional party with an uncertain destiny. So this is this, this was the end uh, substantially and the reasons of, of the end of Lata Contino. Many many younger militants uh, from what I know in Torino but in Milano they had started exiting in 74, 75, as I, as I said before, many younger members who went to the area of autonomia, to Senza Tregua, one organization in the area of the Operaia. Some of them later joined the Frontline or other armed groups in jail. Some got killed. The workers, many of the workers of Lata Contina, uh, had those ma massive factory struggles, were laid off among the 23,000 who were laid off in 1979 from Fiat, only for Fiat, from Fiat. And back to their original condition, Loneliness, social isolation, anonymous life, bitterness and nostalgia for the best season in their life. That was a broken dream of social justice and radical change and gone. And in my book, I wanted to call all those some militant, militants of Lata Contina, the nameless from the Walter Benjamin's clip that goes, let me see how it goes like exactly, goes like this. To the memory of the nameless is dedicated the historical reconstruction. Last thing to say is that no former leader ever took any responsibility 
human disaster. Now, well, after exactly 100 years from the, from the fascist takeover in 1922, we have a premier raised in the youth organization of the MSI, a government with a majority of former new fascists, and the Senate speaker with functions of vice president, the former leader of the violent branch of the fascists in Milano and the proud collector of Mussolini Memorabilia. Women went through, uh, were in discomfort after the Congress. Some of them wanted to become a movement. Some of them wanted to, to do something else and to continue their uh, work for for women's liberation some other way but the disaster cultural disaster of 1980s everything was was gone even for them so it's a storota continua as a story of an enthusiastic season a revolutionary force uh, struggles of, in Italy for years <clears throat> and the fast decline and the fast end. So it's gone with the wind. As you can see, these arguments are still ongoing in the left today, and I don't want to get into it too much, to be honest. That's for another show. In a sense, the story of this Servizio de Ordine, for those who participated and lived through those days, is one of great tragedy. They fought for an ambitious goal of revolution in the name of autonomy, attempting to apply force to defeat extraordinary odds. The effort, of course, fell short, resulting in rancorous disagreements that have not healed to this day. I'm Alexander Reed Ross. And this has been the Years of Lead Pod. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe at the Patreon to hear the entire interview with Fabrizio Salmoni, whose book, I Senza Nome, or The Nameless, documents the entire experience of the Servizio de Ordine in Torino with Lotto Continua from 1969 to 1976. And it lays out his argument very clearly. And give the podcast five stars and uh, write a nice review if you have the time and the inclination. So thank you very much and hope to see you next time. Bye.